We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. When it comes to getting design inspiration, magazines have always been a goldmine for designers and the public alike. Since design blogs, websites and social media took off, there has been an explosion of different ways to get a design fix. Along with being a great promotional tool, design media is being used by architects in a lot of different ways. It can help educate people, it can inspire people, and it can even reassure people about what work architects actually do. In 2020, the Institute Awards were conducted without project visits, and some other awards included virtual exhibitions for architects to present their achievements. As we get more comfortable in a physically distancing world, our reliance on being able to communicate via different forms of media is going to continue to evolve as we learn to connect with a more diverse audience in the public. I'm Daniel Moore, and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we're talking to Gemma Savio, Fernando Jerez, and Amelia Lee about how architects are engaging with an array of media to promote the profession, win commissions, and engage with clients. Getting work published can be a tough process for some practices. There's not really a checklist that lets a firm know when their projects are interesting enough to get them featured in their favourite magazines. When this episode was recorded, Gemma Savio was the editor of Houses magazine and was previously a founding member of Savio Parsons Architects in New South Wales. During her time with Houses, Gemma took advantage of her clear understanding of what it takes to succeed in practice, and she shares how the Houses team seek out homes that are meticulously detailed but also with exceptional stories behind them. Gemma joins us to discuss the process for finding projects that made it into Houses magazine, and also what architects can do to improve their chances of being more successful with their architecture media. All right, Gemma, thank you so much for being part of the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's really wonderful to have you on. How are you going? It's my pleasure, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. Wonderful. So, a lot of the people at architecture media have architectural backgrounds. They've studied at architecture um, or have, you know, since working at architecture media, just visited so much architecture. But you yourself are a practicing architect, as you've mentioned. So, you know, how do you feel that uh, that, that influences the way that you, that you approach your role as editor of a, of a magazine like Houses? Yeah, so that's that's right, Dan. The thing that's really interesting about the team at Architecture Media and really why they were so keen to have me come on board was that there is a degree of expertise within the team that's so important when you are trying to communicate architectural ideas and, and do justice to really complex work. So um, I'm not a registered architect, but I did run a small practice for a few years in Sydney with my partner, Anthony Parsons, my business partner. And I think just having that insight into, you know, what goes into making a piece of really successful architecture or making a, making a really successful home as well, it meant that, you know, I could come into this role being someone who's quite comfortable writing and communicating and kind of work as a translator with the other people in my team who have more of the structured media training and, and journalism training and kind of we, we learn from one another. So it means that we've always got someone who can make sure that what we're doing is correct, essentially. Yeah. Well, I guess that, you know, the idea of, you know, looking at architecture and, and assessing it and deciding what makes it good. I mean, having that perspective uh, from working in practice where you can really uh, sympathise with how much effort it takes to achieve certain details. Has that been a big part of what you've brought to the table? Yeah, absolutely. So when I'm assessing or, um, you know, when we're making editorial decisions, they're never made in a vacuum. They're always kind of decided within the team. And what we're trying to do with, particularly with houses and with Architecture Australia and all all our titles really, but for me I can speak to houses, is to communicate a really broad picture of the type of work that is being done in the residential architecture sphere in Australia and showing exemplar projects. So I suppose for me I can see whether something is detailed really beautifully or really carefully, whether 
you know, sometimes maybe the architecture may be a little bit clumsy, but the, the thing that it's doing for the place or the street or the family is boundary pushing. You know, it's about showing work that sets an example and that also shows diversity, shows diversity because we have so many different housing types, typologies and approaches um, within the industry that it's really important to communicate that bricolage. Yeah. So I guess in terms of houses before you took on the role and houses now that you've taken it on, you started to talk a little bit about the projects that we might not have seen that might start to appear in houses. Um, are you able to allude more to what they might be and what houses might start to look like? Um, well, I think that's really driven by the work that architects are making. So because of the way that projects are submitted for editorial consideration, it's a real balance between people just emailing me through their work and me having my ear to the ground and keeping an eye on what's going on and constantly talking to people to seek work out as well. But because of that, Houses really does reflect what's happening in the moment in architecture in Australia. And also I'm always looking to reflect the different levels of practice as well. So I always want to show emerging practitioners work from all different states in all different contexts so that you get this really quite layered understanding through the publication each issue of how work is shifting across regions and then that kind of makes up a, a whole of, of architecture in, in this country, which is really a, a very special thing. Do you think that when people are contacting you about their work that they should try to align the method that they talk to you about with what they think is the special thing about their project? So if it's less about the detailing, they should put a lot more effort into the story? Yeah, I think it's about just being really open with how the work came to be. All kind of processes are valid. You know, I think that architecture, in my experience anyway, architecture, it doesn't always have to be driven by the desire to have an outcome that is beautiful. It's often a lot more interesting if it's driven by a client or it's driven by a place or a constraint, a budgetary thing, a desire to work with a certain type of material. You know, it can... The, the inspiration can come from anywhere and that doesn't necessarily always result in something that is that instant idea of what, you know, people talk about, oh, it's just the kind of architecture that you see in a, a magazine and that's really not a true reflection, I don't, I, I don't think, of the process and because of houses being this kind of really powerful interface between clients and architects, it's so important to reflect the different ways that architects are approaching work. So, yeah, definitely if there's a story to be told, that's part of the magic. Mm, well, it must be one of the most difficult parts of your role as, as the editor is, I guess, teasing out the best way to tell the story of the work that you can see and, and you know is really engaging. How do you wrestle with that sort of, uh, I guess, responsibility and role as the editor of Houses? I suppose as the editor, I'm always trying to make sure that each feature and each profile or one to watch or reflective piece is all of the parts are really well aligned. So it's like making a piece of architecture really or a work of architecture in that you have to have a great architect, a great client and a great builder. So to put a really good feature together, you need to have a great writer, great architecture to write about and fantastic photographs to work with and as well at really, really accurately communicated drawings. Um, so those kind of four parts, I'm always mindful of getting them all on the page in a way that's clear but also has impact and, yeah, and just tells the story of the work. But the, the writer plays a huge part in that, selecting an appropriate writer. Right. Now, when it comes to the writer, does that completely come down to yourself and the other people who work at houses? Or is this something where if an architect uh, is really proud of their work and they've had some of their colleagues come to visit it, that someone could actually say, oh, I'd love to contact Houses Magazine and say, you know, I'd love to write about this project. Is that a way that it can can it work? Yeah. So, for everything, nothing's nothing's rigid with me, Dan. So yep. <laughs> I like to, you know, give opportunities to everybody to have a go and to hear as many different voices as possible. So, yeah, the, the people who I commission are people who I know can write, but I'm always looking for new writers. 
and people that have ideas, you know, if you have something to say about architecture, if you if you're observant and curious, then I think you'd make for a great writer. Right. Well, yeah, I guess there are probably are a lot of people out there who think that architecture media is difficult to get to and they don't realise that the floodgates are open. Should people send you everything that they've got? And as a previously working architect, were you sending absolutely everything to architecture media before you took on this job? Yeah, so that's quite an interesting it's quite an interesting thing to reflect on, Dan, because my approach towards publishing when I was working in practice was quite guarded really and quite closed off and probably a little bit afraid of the, the publishing process. And we were always very careful about the work that we put out into the world and probably a little bit self-conscious. And in hindsight, now sitting on the other side of the desk, I see how you know, how unnecessary that was to, to feel kind of some sense of, you know, that, that, that our work might not be good enough because it's not really about having your work judged. It's about having your work shared. And that's the great thing about publishing is that it puts your work in front of other people who will be interested in what you're doing. And that's not necessarily just clients, but also other people in the industry who might want to collaborate with you, who you can share resources with as far as contacts, all of that kind of stuff. It's all about letting people know what you're doing and then having that kind of reciprocal sharing of, of information. But as well, I mean, it's great for business to, to be published because I think it does give a level of validation to a prospective client that what you do is is valued more broadly. But yeah, so when people are sending things through to me, I mean, I'm I would like to see everything. Maybe I'm a little bit greedy, but yeah, I'd like to see it all, but I think that it is really great to have a bit of a media strategy or a bit of a publishing strategy when you are approaching different titles. There may be something that you would want to publish with houses that you think wouldn't fit elsewhere. So when you're when you are sending through projects for consideration, I think it's fantastic to have a little bit of a plan about how you want to filter that work out into the world. For me, print has a longer lead time because of what goes into producing a publication and and making sure that the story is really quite robust. So I would always probably go print first if it were me and then filter the work out online after it has been published in print. But at the same time, print is limited. So it's really good to see, you know, how you can get your work out through social media, on blogs and things like that. And yeah, also through what we do at Architecture Media, also through events, talk series, uh, I'm, I'm fading. I'm fading, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, I think that's a really good point, though, is that, um, yeah, you want the work to not just peak and then die. You know, you want it to, to have a long life in any kind of media. So, yeah, spreading it out wide after you've thought about some of those high-level publications, getting the work first, and then filtering out to the online avenues. Um you know, there, there seems to be a bit of a debate at the moment about speak and maybe in magazines and in architectural writing where people can be a little bit more poetic, that might be the place for it to exist. I mean, what's the conversation like at Houses in terms of writing with real poetic license? Would you prefer to get writing that leans slightly more towards the practical or do you really love it when someone comes in and it's very evocative? So I think you can be... You can be poetic and you can be evocative um, but still communicate in a way that's accessible and, you know, direct and also educational as well. The thing about houses is it, it sits in this really unique spot where our readers are architects but our readers are also the general public. So it's always kind of being very aware of that position and making sure that the words are communicating the the complexity of the architecture but at the same time not alienating the reader and coming from an academic background myself so I've done a lot of teaching and quite a bit of research and academic writing and it's something that it's a skill that I have had to learn in this role is to not make my words opaque so I think that you can still be extremely poetic without speaking or using terminology that other people may not be familiar with. 
Yeah, well, that must be uh, an interesting side of houses that architects don't really get to see is that public-facing side of houses. So, you know, architects engage with houses through marketing side to it and there's awards and there's things like that. What is houses' interaction with the public and what do you do to try to advocate for the work that architects and interior designers are doing through the magazine? We're kind of a very approachable and very friendly title and I think that most people who are familiar with houses and the houses brand would attest to that. We, It's really for us and it comes from a very genuine place about building community and for me personally coming from my position in practice, this is a big reason why I decided to take the role with houses and with architecture media was because I saw it as an opportunity to advocate for an industry that I have been part of and feel really, really passionate about um, celebrating and, yeah, and empowering because I still do think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about what architects do and maybe an industry that potentially is not quite as valued as I think it should be. Yeah, so we have a magazine that's, I think, very light and bright and positive. So that's, you know, that already sets the tone of, you know, architects aren't disconnected from the everyday person, always trying to include the client's story. So we have interviews with the clients, working with an architect section in every magazine, also just including design that is, you know, not just architecture, but also, you know, furniture design, lighting design, almost a way of introducing the general public to this idea that design is kind of everywhere and it is something that can be part of every day um, and, and kind of should be part of every day potentially. But we also do, uh, we run a lot of events. So with houses, we have an event called Our Houses, which is where we essentially travel around Australia and we invite an architect and their client to come and speak with a group of, you know, sometimes 100, 150 people, sometimes smaller intimate groups of just 20, 30 people, 40, depending on where we are and who's hosting us. But it's those events are so relaxed and just good fun and often very revealing as well. So you get real people to talk about their authentic experience working with an architect and, and then living in architecture as well. So it's about inspiring people to use an architect. Yeah, I've always loved the Our Houses format. I think it's a really, really wonderful way of bridging that gap between the public and, and architects and what everyone gets out of that process. When it comes to you know architectural media, and this is a more general term, not architecture, media, the company, that when we're thinking about magazines, we're sort of limited to, as you mentioned before, drawings, photographs, and print. How do you feel about the way that things are moving with social media, video, and what that is meaning for houses? Do you feel like that there needs to be some sort of shift in terms of what architects should be delivering to the public? I mean, do people seem to be wanting a little bit more interactive media? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the thing about that is it just expands the opportunity to build on what we're already doing and move it into different spaces. So houses is on Instagram, Facebook, etc. We've recently started working doing video content as well. And at Architecture Media, we have Architecture AU, which is our website. You know, has huge readership and is a great resource. And all of our all of the houses content goes onto Architecture AU as well. So even though houses, I think, has a a reputation as being a print publication, we really are digital as well and moving into that space more and more. But we're really mindful of the way that we do that in, you know, we want to make sure that everything that we put out into the world has, yeah, the same amount of rigour that's put into a print publication because, you know, they, they do operate on a different timescale and often, you know, the internet is a hungry beast that kind of needs to be fed and it needs to be fed very, very quickly. So with that, I think quality can easily drop. So we're just really mindful in that space that we make sure that the work is represented with the same level of accuracy and, you know, interest as, as it would be with something that's been given a lot of time 
so yeah, so we we're kind of strategizing around all of that at the moment, and it's an exciting time. Right. So if architects do have video content or or some other kind of multimedia, they can include that in the information that they send to you to introduce you to their projects because it might end up on houses social media or on Architecture AU, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And once again, it's another space for creative output that I see is really exciting for architects because. As a community, architects are pretty good at wearing a lot of hats, you know. They're good at conceptualising and coming up with ways of, represent, you know, representation. So, yeah, it's wonderful to see the video that we have kind of been part of making so far. It's been so delightful working with architects to produce that work. Mm. And this is the Talking Houses series, is it? Yeah, yeah, the Talking Houses series that we did as part of um, the Houses Awards 10-year celebration essentially was a catalyst to have a series of videos made about each of the Australian House of the Year award winners. And each of those videos, I really recommend watching them because they're so they're so different and they really show that the the way the different approaches of those architects to those landmark houses. So it's kind of it's been really cool. Speaking about talking houses, I mean it's just such a, a wonderful series that reminds me a lot of um, the Our Houses series. Has there been a, a story from the Our Houses presentations that you've seen where uh, yeah you're really hoping that you can get to tell that story through video or, or some other media in the future? There's so many, Dan. They all bring their own kind of thing. The two that spring to mind for me was when we were in. So Caitlin came over to Perth with me, Caitlin Butler, the editorial director of Architecture Media, and we put on a an Our Houses uh, in Perth and we invited Hannah Tribe and one of her clients who she'd designed a terrace house in Paddington for her and Andrea from Mork and his client for the house called Cloister House. And the two stories were so personal and the clients were so generous in the way that they spoke about their homes and their lives and the relationships with so both both pairs the relationship between the architect and the client had developed into something that was so respectful and appreciative and they just really it was really moving the whole the whole evening so that's one that I think would be beautiful to tell in film. Mm. And it seems as well like the phot- photographers that I've been speaking to are really keen to kind of experiment with film as a medium as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for being part of the Hearing Architecture podcast. Gemma, it's been really wonderful to have a chat with you and to hear about your really unique experience. And we wish you all the best with houses in the future and look forward to seeing more additions as they come to light. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, Dan, and hope everyone's enjoying houses. While getting projects published in print media is still held in the highest regard, and digital media is now the most popular way to get a practice's work out there, working on competitions is still a great way to explore a design brief and put some work out into the world for the public to see. Fernando Jerez of Smart Architecture is originally from Madrid, but has set up his practice in Perth, has a small office in Lithuania after they won a competition there, works as an academic, and enters architecture competitions all around the world. They work in a very strategic way to reduce the risk versus reward concerns that prevent a lot of architects from being involved in open competitions. Most recently, Smar was a top three finalist for the design of an architectural landmark in Silicon Valley. Their project received wide media coverage, which is pretty good considering it was for an unbuilt project. Thank you so much, Fernando, for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. How are you going? I'm going well, thanks. It's really good. Okay. Well, yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about why architectural competitions are so integral to your practice? Okay. Uh, in the f- I mean, uh, the first thing I would like to say is that I'm an academic as well. So I'm not full-time in practice. This is a figure that is very common in Europe. So when I studied architecture in, the, in Madrid and in London, it was a very, very common that my the most interesting teachers that I had, they also had a practice. And the most interesting practices that you can find, they also teach. So it's, it's, it's a very common, this kind of a small, medium-sized office where the principles are also academics. Understanding academics as a, because I'm a, I'm a teacher, but also a researcher. So 
trying to innovate and try to come up with you know new topologies of architecture and try you know, urban strategies and so on and being uh, connected to university gives you this kind of fresh air to continue researching and doesn't allow you to sleep in the in, in the commercial work let's say and uh, I started to the competition when I was a student and I found as a really good vehicle first to try new things and experiment but also to get your your name out there and have the opportunity to start an office. So I think that open competitions, and we're talking about because there are different kinds of competitions, and sometimes people call competitions what I don't understand as competitions. So we can talk about that uh, later. But I think open anonymous competitions, where the winner is only selected because of the quality of the work and not because of the track record or not because of the name, not because of other things, they're a really good opportunity for young practices and recent graduates and I think that is something that it should be more uh, more common. And, and unfortunately, there are not that many open competitions, as you expect. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like it's a really great method to find that balance between practice and academia because these open and anonymous competitions allow you to propose ideas that may actually be built. So they have to be grounded in reality but then you can still introduce more academic ideas into the designs. Yes, I think, I mean, you can, it doesn't mean that you have to be an academic to the competitions. I think competitions, and, and again, I say open anonymous competitions is a model that is basically designed to give opportunity to young people to practice. Because practice out there is very difficult. You need a lot of connections with clients. Uh, so it's not easy. And I, I'm thinking of my students. It's not easy to get out there and open you know, a practice and have work. So competitions is a, are a way to prove your talent and have this first opportunity. So I think for, for young people, it's a very good thing. And competitions have been running for the last 70 years or 100 years in every country. Unfortunately, there are less and less open anonymous competitions. And then there are more and more expression of interest or invited which give uh, opportunity to the same consolidated practices, but not for the new and emerging young architects. On the other hand, a competition gives you the opportunity to test new things. And because if you win, the client has to respect your project. So the, the winning project is the one that has to be built, although you have to develop and you have to prove your concept, they cannot change the essence. And that's a really good thing. And that's a reason why some of the best buildings in, in the world uh, came through competitions. Mm. And like you were saying, you know, for younger practices who also might not win, but they might get uh, third or second place, you can still use these really good results in your portfolio as your practice is building because it has your unique ideas in the project still. Exactly, exactly. And then it gives the, the young practices the opportunity to have a very bold portfolio because those projects if they're not awarded, which is the normal thing, the normal thing is to lose competitions because you have a lot of entries. The unusual thing is to win them, open competitions. But even if you lose, you have a collection of projects that you can show to clients or you know, they build your portfolio. If you're lucky and have a second or third prize, as you said, better because though, with the help of the media, you can show those projects around. Mm. I mean, as you said, you know, doing these competition takes a lot of effort and time. What is your strategy in terms of the risk versus reward of doing a competition? How do you address that? Because it seems like a lot of practices might decide not to do competitions because it might be highly likely that they won't win. So how do you rationalize that? It has no rationale behind, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> it got you, so you spend a lot of time, resources and money. Mm. And then the chances of win the competition at less than, you know, winning the lottery. So, so it's, it's, really, it's really difficult. And I was just having a conference call just a few minutes ago with California where we are developing this, this uh, second stage project from the competition. And then I was having these conversations with some architects and stakeholders. And then they were saying that in America, there was a, a research that showed that architecture was in the bottom list, second in, from the bottom in terms of revenue, only beaten by poetry. As a profession. <laughs> so if you can see right. that architecture is not a particularly well-paid profession, and then you do competitions, you're going to lose money for sure. But <laughs> I, I don't want to discourage young people because on the other hand, you can win mm. and, and then you can do, you know, it's, it's, 
is kind of dreaming of impossible things and make them happen. And, and recovering the connection that architecture has with the arts. Because if we look at history, and we look at you know, the Pantheon in Rome or the Sixteen Chapel, you know, the, the work of Michelangelo and Leonardo and, and uh, all these Renaissance architects, and the work of Le Corbusier or the modernist, all these architects were artists at the same time and were working very closely with art. I mean, Michelangelo and another were also painters and sculptures, and Le Corbusier himself was a painter. But all these, I mean, even, even Mies van der Rohe in the Bauhaus, they were all connected. But now it seems like architecture has detached from art and has, has become a more bureaucratic profession. And sometimes it's, I don't call it architecture anymore, I call it the building industry. So I think competitions, in a way, are a way of recovering that connection with the arts, uh, I mean, the environment, and you know, all the things that we have to consider right now. But recovering that artistic and poetic dimension, which sometimes in the commercial work is lost. Well, uh, yeah, and it seems like in a competition, you can put forward almost a complete picture of what your ideology might be or some innovations in design into a project that, that might not be built. And that's, that's actually where the benefits are because if it has to be built some of those innovations or aspirations might be lost when the project has to be realized. Exactly. I mean, if you think uh, in Sydney, for example, the Sydney Opera House came from an open ideas competition, international. I saw some of the entries and the finalists of the competition they were much more conservative. A lot of them look like sheds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the, so the Eros Arin was really wanted to word a project that he really believed that he was going to change architecture history as the Sydney Opera House did. And then it became a symbol for the city. Same happened with the Pompidou Center in Paris. And it was a similar situation where the most conservative part of the jury was against the Pompidou Center, same as the Sydney Opera House. And then these bold jurors, in the case of the Pompidou Center, was Jean Prouvet, who was the president of the jury. And, and then he really bet and used a lot of arguments to defend the Pompidou Center, which had the opposition of the press, the opposition of the stakeholders, of the government, of everybody. And then he proved right because it is one of the most successful buildings of Paris. And it was a new typology introduced in, this, uh, in the Beauport neighborhood. And then at the time, people called it a shopping mall, not a museum, and things like that. So in, in order to advance architecture, and then thanks to the Pompidou Center, you had the successful careers of Richard Rogers and Renzo Piano and Norman Foster, the high-tech architects, that they have been really successful replicating that model. So th thanks to a competition, trigger a lot of, a new way of doing architecture, exposing the structure, what is called high-tech, that probably without the Pompidou would have been harder to get out there. So I think competitions are not only beneficial for the team that wins and that specific project, but can trigger, not in every case, but in, in some cases can trigger a whole new type of architecture that may be environmentally friendly and maybe you know is a, is a, is a better it brings a, a new construction system process that is more efficient mm -hmm. and things like that. So in terms of how competitions can be used as a form of media to put across ideas, what do you think might be missing in other types of media that we can get across in a competition? Yeah, I think that media has changed a lot in the last 10 years, let's say. So before, it was a series of very specific magazines uh, with a curatorial team that selected who and when was going to be published. And then they were makers of, of star architects. So those, those curatorial teams, editorial boards of these few magazines, on the one hand, they were good because they have this kind of selection process and they were filtering good quality. Uh, on the other hand, concentration of power is not always good. So sometimes they were reducing of the same names for decades or many years who were the important architects of the time. Now it's a, it's, it looks like a more democratic process, but on the other hand, a more superficial one because people know the magazines allow you to see not only one image, but a series of images and drawings and even construction details and a lot of information about the architect and why they did these things and the process. While now with Instagram or these blocks of architecture, you scroll down just an image so the whole project is concentrated in one single image. So I think now is a lack of understanding in media in general. Uh, it's a more superficial understanding of architecture because you have it's only one image, and that's it. I think competitions 
can bring a lot of attention. I remember the Guggenheim Helsinki competition, which was the first competition we did when we arrived to Australia in the end of 2014. Right. And where did you place in that competition? We were shortlisted uh, among 1,715 in the top six. Oh, my goodness. Top six out of 1,700. That's amazing. So we were potential winners of the competition for seven months, mm. I think. So, <laughs> And actually, was that, competi- that competition was uh, really interesting because um, we came to Australia and we did one local competition here that we lost among five teams. And we were really disappointed. It was a competition with less competitors that we did in our lives we don't do a lot of competitions but which is that one we lost it and when we did it because we were starting the office here we didn't have an infrastructure yet so we did it with a group of students and then the students i think they were disappointed thinking who are these guys that they, they do a competition among five teams and they and they lose it <laughs> and and probably we didn't understand well you know the constraints of the local how was the, that, that project so the second competition we did was at Guggenheim and, and then was a big one. And, and then we were expected in a lot of entries, but not to th- almost 2,000. I think it's the biggest competition in the history of, of architecture in, in terms of number of entries. And also it was very interesting because it was the first time that the Guggenheim Foundation was doing an open ideas competition and not commission the project to uh, Frank, either Frank or Wright or Frank Gehry. So, and also the site, Helsinki, because it has this tradition of design, so that made the competition really exciting. The site, the city, the client, and all of that. So we we enjoyed the process. We didn't thought that we were going to be shortlisted. Uh, we did it for the fun of the process and just to clean up our minds. But then the moment we started to do the competition, we started to understand what kind of process we were in. And then we thought very strategically what kind of thing they were asking for. And then we read in the brief that they were asking for a museum. And then the first thing we thought is, oh, maybe we don't have to design a museum. And then they were asking for plans and sections and elevations. And we thought, maybe we don't have to do plans and sections and elevations. And then we thought, there's going to be a lot of entries. So everybody's they're going to be, do renders and color renders. And we thought, maybe we don't have to do color renders. So, <laughs> so we, we basically propose that the next Guggenheim Museum shouldn't be a museum or a traditional museum as the other Guggenheims. And the communication of that process should be more like a research of what a museum of the 21st century should be more than a proposal. And we got shortlisted. And it was, it was very interesting because if we were flying to Spain, it was announced almost in Christmas. So we, were, we started to have, to have like a lot of emails from journalists from all over the world. But then we asked to the organization, are we shortlisted? And they didn't reply. Uh. <laughs> so we didn't know. And then we, the only thing we got was an email saying that everything was confidential and we cannot say anything about the competition. So we have all the journalists asking questions, but we couldn't say anything. And then we got, it was all of the news. I think the website got something close to 6 million visits or something in the first weeks. It was all of the newspapers. Uh, and then that project, I think that was really well organized and, and it was really interesting. And the second stage was a learning process for us, flying to Helsinki, having a, week, a one week workshop with the stakeholders and the six teams. We were there with a good variety of new names and more established names in the shortlist. And then the development of the second stage was really interesting also. Uh, we were working with uh, Aero, for example, as an engineer firm, a local office in Finland. So for us, it was almost the first time that we went into that big building process internationally. And then even though we didn't win and the project didn't end up being built because the parliament stopped it, it was a good experience. And then that gave us the chance to get involved in more competitions. But we are very selective. People think we are doing competitions all the time. I have to colleagues that think, what are you doing now? Another competition. <laughs> <laughs> but that must, that must make it really, like you were saying, you were really strategic just doing the competition. It sounds like you have to be strategic about what competition you choose to do because if the competition rules don't allow you to talk to media or they're extremely strict about you know, what you can actually deliver, might be too restrictive. Is that is that the way you think about it, or are there other considerations that you make when you're choosing the competition to do? 
I mean, when we do, for example, to give you an example, the, this competition that we've been shortlisted in, in Silicon Valley, yeah, it was 963 entries. It's for the Urban Confluence Silicon Valley competition? Exactly, that, that one. So that one uh, is the only competition we've done this year so far. So we, uh, we try not to do many competitions because, as I said, it takes a lot of time and money and, and resources. So we are small. And we are not like, you know, Forster and Partners, they can put a team of five people doing a competition. It doesn't matter because you, you have, you know, 1,000 employees. So we, we try to be selective. And we're trying to do things that first are fun. So projects that we can enjoy. For example, this Silicon Valley competition was really attractive because it was a, representing a place like Silicon Valley that has really the identity of, of uh, allocating the big tech companies of the world, like Google and Facebook and Tesla and all these companies, but it doesn't have any big structure that represents the place as they want it. Uh, they were talking about San Francisco has the Golden Gate and Paris has the Eiffel Tower. Bilbao has the Guggenheim Museum. Sydney has the Sydney Opera House, but we don't have that. So we thought that it was really challenging and attractive and it ended up being really difficult to try to condense that. Well, it, yeah, it must be really hard to try to condense that, but also communicate it to a panel who is so technology savvy. Did you have to show them traditional drawings or was it a little bit more open to using technology? I mean, in reality, they didn't want something very technological. They wanted something to endure uh, because in the most avant-garde technological place in the world, anything could be outdated in a few years. So if you do something, you work with you know technology, it would be a new technology that you know would be better in a few years. So they wanted something that obviously engaged with the community and represents the place, but also that has a global impact. And it was a difficult challenge because also the constraints of the site are very strict because it's a river. It's called Urban Conference because it's a confluence of two rivers. And then there's a series of setbacks. So it's placed in a park that the city of San Jose has donated for the project. And then you have two bands to do the project, but very narrow. And you have some buildings around. So the placemaking was difficult. Also condensed Silicon Valley in a building or a single structure is a, is a challenge. So we, we, we wanted to come up with an idea that represents Silicon Valley, but also was representing that we are in 2020 and heading to an uncertain future. And we have to, uh, we are surrounded by a lot of uncertainty. And we have to, I think our architecture has to provide certainty in a world of uncertainty. And we wanted to provide some good and nice ideas for the future and something that uh, was new, that you know, hasn't been done before. It must be, yeah, tricky because it's because you're trying to do something that's new to architecture. It's also new and exciting for the uh, people in Silicon Valley to to engage with. It sounds like a very interesting brief to try to deliver on. Yeah, I mean, last year we we got shortlists and and got some awards in you know libraries or concert halls and things like that. For us, I think it's much easier to do a concert hall, even if it's huge, because you have <laughs> because it's because it's for concerts, right? <laughs> it's like for concerts, and you have yeah. all the information. You have the brief. You have to do concert hall and you have to allocate these people and you have so you have all the instructions but when you have to do something so open it's really challenging and difficult so we did a lot of iterations and then we got to this final design and now we have to make it happen and now we have to solve it because it has a lot of <laughs> a lot of uh, things to solve well yeah i was i was told at university once by, by a lecturer that sometimes you should enter competitions aiming to come second so that you don't have to figure out all the problems when you come first and have to actually build it yes yeah <laughs> and at yeah, the, yeah, at the end of the for the actual delivery stage in the, the final delivery stage in the competition did you have to deliver traditional drawings or did you deliver um, video or something else i mean in, no, normally uh you have to submit drawings and i mean and images in a, in a first stage normally but in this case we were able to to submit a video as well so it was two panels and a video and the video apparently helped us a lot to get into the right, cool. final that's great and what what was it about the video was it uh, is it because you have to really engage with the narrative yes yes so i i study architecture and between madrid and, and london and then i moved to new york to study filmmaking when I was, when I was, uh, so I am a film lover. I mean, I, I enjoy a lot narratives and stories and, and so on. So I think that in a way is embedded in our projects. 
I remember the first class that we had in New York. I remember this guy coming from Hollywood, scriptwriter, and he said, you know, movies are very easy. It's about three things. Story, story, story. And then he left. And I think storytelling is really important in architecture as well, in cities and in the world. So how, how are you, you're telling stories with buildings. You're telling stories with uh, education spaces, with work spaces, with houses. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Fernando, for being part of the Hearing Architecture podcast. And congratulations again on your most recent architecture competition, the Urban Confluence Silicon Valley competition. And I'm sure that anyone who's interested in seeing it can find it online now. And yeah, we look forward to speaking to you in the future and seeing more of your projects. Okay. Thank you very much, Daniel, for this opportunity. And and, uh, yeah, hope to talk in the future with you. It seems that the main way architects engage with media has something to do with promotion, but architects can also use traditional and digital media to advocate for their work, their profession, and also connect with the wider community. Amelia Lee is a registered architect based in New South Wales, and she started a platform called The Undercover Architect, which uses all forms of digital media to educate the community about what architects do, how to effectively work well with them, and also how architects work well with others. The Undercover Architect podcast is also one of the most successful design podcasts in Australia, because Amelia is so good at helping people outside the profession understand what we do. Thank you so much, Amelia, for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast today. How are you going? I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, let's. I want to. I want to introduce you to people who might not have discovered you yet uh, in the rest of the architecture profession. What was coming up again and again that made you steer towards these platforms, the podcasts and the blogs, to to educate clients to understand the process more? What, what seemed to keep coming up? That, that inspired you to move more in that direction? Yeah, I think I'll track back a little bit because it sort of started before I began Undercover Architect. So I have a career working in design firms. I worked uh, as a project architect as part of the senior design team for Mervac Queensland for a long time. I then co-owned an architectural practice uh, with, I had five business partners and, you know, 20 team of 20 with a studio in Sydney and Brisbane and did that for five years. And then had um, some personal stuff happen, went to Uganda with a not-for-profit at the end of 2013, which really kind of forced me to assess my life and where I was at. And I realised that the dream of owning a big architectural practice was not really my dream and that my family and I, we'd always wanted to live in the Byron hinterland and we were living in Brisbane at the time. And so we started making moves to be able to do that. I told my partners that I wanted to leave the business and uh, we started looking around for a new place to live. And so we moved in the middle of 2014 and I knew that if uh, I moved to the area and started up an architectural practice, a traditional architectural practice, you could throw a rock and hit a, an architect in the Byron area and I was going to be having to travel everywhere to see sites. You know, you have to travel quite long distances in regional areas. And I have three kids. They were quite young at the time we moved here. They were sort of three, three, five and seven. And I just didn't want to be spending that much time away from them. So, and the not-for-profit that I traveled to Uganda with, it's an organization called The Hunger Project that really seeks to empower those most impacted through hunger and poverty by educating them to be able to navigate their way out of it. And I remember looking at all sorts of other things to do in our move. I thought I need to be able to work from home, have flexibility, work with people remotely. And somebody very wise said to me, your skills as an architect are not easily replicable. You should look at doing something with that. And I realized I remembered all of those conversations you have at the school gate, at the barbecue, with friends over dinner, where they've just not got the information that they need about their project at the time that they needed it, you know, before they had that first conversation, before they dived into the project to really change the pathway and to improve the process and to get them working with the right people to know what to expect and to help them be who they need to be to make decisions that are worthwhile for their home. And so I thought if I can educate them, if I can help them understand and get access to really good information, professional information, not light fluffy blogs, not light styling information, not reality TV, but actual professional you know, expertise and experience, then maybe they'll get what they need when they need it to be able to make better decisions and prioritise things like orientation and, you know, designing for the movement of the sun and creating much more sustainable homes and lifestyles as a result. Yeah, so Undercover Architect really began as an education business and I started blogging from the word dot. And it was hilarious because my previous business, DC8 Studio, 
when we'd started our website, one of the partners had said to me, we need to have a blog. And I was like, that's just going to have to be another thing we have to maintain. That's ridiculous. <laughs> We're not going to do yeah. that. You know, and I fought it tooth and nail and later apologized because, yeah, for me, that was what I, how I started Undercover Architect. And I just trusted that if I led with education, that the business would grow and the money would come. And what happened was I just made a commitment to writing a weekly blog, figured out how to build a website, figured out, you know, started learning social media and those kinds of things and just slowly built a list and a community around that and then started figuring out how I was going to work with people providing some form of architectural services. And the way that I did that was I productized a design concept process where I would work with people over Skype and I would deliver them a package of design concepts and then not enforce copyright so that they could take that to a local draftsperson design professional to be able to continue the process. But in that in that productization, I taught them why the design was done the way that it was, what was going to kill it if they changed it, really made them the agents, the ambassadors of owning that design and why it needed to be that way and helping them be confident about carrying that through. And so it just, as I blogged more, I had more and more people wanting to work with me in that way and it just grew from there. And I was doing those kind of design concepts over Skype on a regular basis. Right. Well, what were the benefits of blogging that brought these people to you? How, how did it open things up? It was amazing because you think of all of the conversations that you have one-to-one when you go and visit somebody's house on a Saturday morning and you're, <laughs> you know, you're trying to talk them into hiring you and that kind of stuff. And you're having the same conversations over and over again. So having the blog meant that I could talk to you know, I worked out who my ideal client was, the person I most wanted to work with, and I spoke to her. I wrote these blogs for her. And it meant that I attracted the kinds of people that I love working with. And, you know, those people found me out and the people that didn't agree with what I was writing, didn't like what I was writing, they self-selected to not get in touch with me before they'd wasted my time on a phone call or on a Saturday morning. And, It meant that I could teach them about how I work and what I think is valuable and important in the way that I work with them to bring their homes to life before I even had to have that conversation. So even when they started working with me, they'd self-selected me, they'd they'd got to know me through the blogs, they'd got to understand the way that I work. So they turned up trusting me because I didn't have to convince them of who I was and the way that I wanted to do things. They already trusted me. We got results far faster. They put into action the things that I was working with them on far more actively. And it meant that I charged for my time from the moment that somebody worked with me. So I wasn't available on the phone to answer questions. I ended up pulling my phone number off the website. If there was one-to-one advice happening that was personal advice on your project, you paid for my time. And so that meant that I just was able to leverage then all of the time that I was spending to be able to reach the people that I wanted to work with and then be paid for the time that I was actually spending working with them. Mm. And it sounds like it's really beneficial because some people might think, oh, but that sounds like you were narrowing the scope of your potential clients, but it was actually (laughs) focusing. It was focusing it towards the people that you wanted to work with and you know, I think that's sort of the duality of, of when you can get stuck with thinking, oh, if I start putting my opinion out there or start putting my ideas out there already, then some people might say, oh, I don't want to work with you. But it can actually end up yeah, bringing, yeah. <laughs> can actually focus it. <laughs> it there. is that mm. thing, yeah. Mm. You do, you stick your head up above the fence and you risk getting it chopped off. But it's um, it, it's one of those things that, I, you know, as architects, we just don't get given a lot of business information, marketing information, any education around that. For me to build this business, I looked everywhere else but the architectural industry and I looked I looked at other industries that were doing this and other processes that were doing this and then translated what that meant inside an architectural business. And that for me was really sort of the success of, of seeing the results and also understanding that just because I was speaking to my ideal client didn't mean that I alienated everybody. I just alienated the people that I didn't really want to work with anyway. Those challenging clients, the ones that aren't going to listen to you, are going to bicker over fees, you know, and it, it meant that 
I reached people, more of my people, and was able then to really enjoy the people that I worked with. You know, I remember when we started DC8, the mantra I sort of said to the other partners was like, we say yes to everything. And it's the worst thing that you do because then nobody knows you for anything, you know. So the thing is when you work out who your ideal client is and then you do all of your marketing, all of your blogging, you know, anything that you're putting together, speaking directly to them, it means that you attract them, you work with really great people and you become known as being the person who does that thing, you know, that work, that that specific work. So this started off being quite um, a little bit introspective with the blogging and then it, you open it up by being able to meet people one-to-one. Since then, you've also started the Undercover Architect podcast and then you also offer classes where people can come in and learn about the architectural process. Yeah, so I've had the podcast since the end of 2016 and that was really an opportunity for us to go back and look at the the content and be much more, I think I'd been very reactive with the blogging. You know, if a question came up, I would just write a blog about it. You know, I'd put it in the file of list of things that I was going to write blogs about, whereas the podcast enabled us to go back and, you know, I really started at the beginning and took people on a process, on a journey through the most important information. And then prior to that, I'd created an online program. And so I created something called 30 Days to Renault Ready and then that's ballooned into more online programs. So we've got quite a suite of online programs now that help people with different sort of challenges and needs in their projects. And then I've also done things like run uh, online webinars or online workshops. I've done those as both paid pieces of content and also just informational pieces of content that are about reaching more people and helping them and growing my community. Mm. And when, when you started getting in contact with more people and being able to run these courses, what seemed to be the the aha moments where the people taking your course go, oh, is that part of what <laughs> architects are doing? And <laughs> Yeah, there's such a misconception about what architects do. And, you know, if I had my time again, I probably wouldn't call them business undercover architect because it immediately front loads people's perception of what it is. But I think, you know, I just know that I worked so hard to be able to give myself that title that I didn't really want to let go of it. And I think it does. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it does differentiate us in a very noisy marketplace with a lot of non-professional people teaching people how to build and renovate. But I think that, you know, architecture is its own worst enemy. We're a super insular industry that don't really share outside of those one-to-one relationships, what we do and how we help. And so when you start to say to people, do you realise that an architect can help with, you know, helping you assess whether a site's even worth buying, helping you assess whether where to site a house, helping you to assess, you know, that early conceptual stuff. A lot of what I'm teaching homeowners is it's not about what you're designing. When I say what you're designing in terms of the layout, the floor plan, the rooms, the arrangement of spaces, it's actually about what you're choosing the approach that you're choosing, the strategy that you're setting, you know, that makes a fundamental difference to how much it costs, how long it takes. You know, I often say there's four phases to every project. There's before you begin your design, there's getting your design right, there's before you build and there's getting your project built. Homeowners are only thinking about getting their project built. And so they're focusing on speaking to the builder, understanding if it's feasible, what needs to be done to start construction. And what I'm teaching is that when you work through those first three phases and you do them thoroughly, productively, and carefully, the construction part, that fourth stage goes smoothly. You know, you iron out all your risk, you manage all of your processes. And so it's really teaching people to understand the totality of a project and how an architect can really be their partner and their collaborator through that process. And any designer can. It's really about helping them understand how to choose the best designer for their project based on what they're doing, where they're located and their needs and ambitions. Yeah, and, and and like you say, there are so many people along the way that are going to be part of the project that uh, one of the great things about your, your podcast as well is that you're talking to the other allied professionals, so, you know, landscapers, interior designers and, and different people that architects work with to demystify and to educate how architects are working with a lot of people off to the sides doing very specific work as well. Yeah, well, that's the thing. We we're, it's best done as a team sport. You know, that's the that's the greatest success. And the when you bring these these professionals in on board early in your project, then that's you know when you get everybody coordinating and working together and and collaborating with you, you get such much better results. And I think, unfortunately, what most homeowners think about when they're designing and renovating is that they're going to basically 
work with each of these individuals in sort of a staggered process. And as a result, they silo all of the activities from one to another. They lose heaps of time and money in the assumptions that fall in the gaps between each of those, you know, people or they're often having to redo work because they'll go to a designer or draftsperson who then tells them well next they need to go to an engineer the engineer says that they need to change those drawings again you know then they go to a builder the builder tells them that they need to, like it's and that's what most homeowners are dealing with and so teaching them that it's actually you want to front load this you want to get these people on your team very early and and helping them understand why it's worth investing in that that it actually saves money not only in the cost of their project but in the cost of running their home the type of home that they create and I also started a second business last year with a builder Dwayne Pierce where we're now teaching builders how to run their businesses better because for me the dream is now to build an army of builders that know how to take care of homeowners and understand homeowners the way that I've learned about them in Undercover Architect and and to teach homeowners to bring builders on as part of their design team because, you know, I had the benefit of obviously working in big multi-res projects and, you know, other public projects where somebody from construction is part of the design team from the get-go, helping us manage cost and deliverability and efficiency on site, whereas the single residential homeowner doesn't get the benefit of that. For some reason, it's the only sector in the industry that doesn't, and yet it's the finances are so much more significant for them and the impact of those decisions are so much more significant. And we see the success that happens when we actually build a collaborative team, including the builder, at the very beginning and the homeowner then gets to work as a partner with those consultants the whole way through. They get to construction and and it's just a much, much better outcome, far more enjoyable for them. Homeowners think that, designing, building and renovating is going to be this thing they have to put a suit of armour on for, that it's going to be drama filled because that's what they see around them. And for me, it's about teaching them that you can enjoy it. It's not doesn't mean it's not going to be without its challenges. Every project's different. We all know that things come up unexpectedly. But when you've got the right people in your corner, then that you're much better equipped to handle those challenges more successfully. Being online means that I can just get that information in front of people when it really matters to them and building a trusting relationship with them through them, you know, continually showing up and being committed to continuing to educate them just means that they, uh, yeah, they trust the information that they receive and then they act on it. Yeah. And because you've worked with so many different media methods, how do you think a firm should look at each medium and what do you think each medium can actually deliver to their potential client base or even their existing client base? For example, do you think every firm should have a podcast or do you think every (laughs) single firm should have a blog? It's tricky because it's there's this one thing of like what works and what's successful out there and then there's the other thing of what can you personally make a commitment to being consistent doing, you know. To me, consistency is the key. You know, that's actually the thing that underpins the power of any of it. And so you've got to make a decision about what you actually like doing and what you're willing to keep doing on a regular basis because you're not going to see results overnight and it's really a case of managing that. And I think every firm should be building an email list that they keep in touch with. You don't own any of the other traffic on your website, on your social media, you know, on YouTube videos, on your podcast, but you do own your email list. So working at how you build an email list, whether it's through having some type of downloadable guide on your website or something like that, that then creates a list of people that you keep regular contact with. Homeowners are looking for designers five years sometimes before they're planning on starting their project. So this is a long-term relationship that you have the opportunity to show up at in a regular way to be front of mind then and build a relationship with somebody before they pick up the phone to make a decision. And then it's a case of sort of looking where else you want to be. So the blogs, of course, are really handy for SEO and for helping your website be found. But if you're a small business, it's all about you deciding how big an audience do you actually need in order to get the work that you require to keep your business growing and being sustainable. So, you know, for me, the podcast was because... I really like having conversations. I like being able to do it from home. And so it's been a really beautiful way of creating a relationship with my community that's quite intimate because you're in somebody's ear for at least half an hour every week and you can give really, really valuable information and bring other guests on and those types of things. Um, but it's a, it's much harder than blogging. And, you know, YouTube is YouTube's the second largest search engine after Google and it's owned by Google. And so, you know, if you're somebody who likes getting on camera, you know, you don't have to worry about having all the equipment. Literally all my videos are just done on my phone. 
social media is a really good opportunity to show a bit more of your personality. So I find that the blog and the podcast is education-led. It's also values-led, you know, mission-led. What's the purpose of this and what's my business really about? And then the uh, social media, it's also about education and sharing and driving people to those other platforms that you've created, but it's about being more personal and having that more personal connection. And I think for me, it's really, you've just got to make a decision about which one you can be most consistent with and then make a commitment to do that. I made a commitment back in September of 2014 that I was going to send out a weekly blog and there's been one Christmas where I skipped a couple of you know blogs but since then I have literally and you know some of them have been done like literally in the hours before the newsletter was supposed to go out and um, they're not always perfect but it's progress not perfection and it's just essential that you just keep showing up that's what really makes the difference. All right, Amelia. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. It was really wonderful to hear uh, your story and and what you're delivering to the community because you know you're not uh, you're not just doing it for your own practice. You're actually doing it to help all of the architects around you and you know around Australia and around the world. You know, <laughs> everyone who finds your podcast. Yep. So, thank you so much for for all of that hard work. And we look forward to hearing more of your podcast and to read more of your blogs in the future. Thanks so much. It's been great talking with you. This has been episode eight of season two of Hearing Architecture. Thank you so much for listening. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favorite podcast app. Thank you to our guests in this episode, Gemma Savio, Fernando Jerez and Amelia Lee for their contribution to the architecture profession and the community. The interviews in this season were coordinated around Australia by Imagine Committee members Jamila Jahangiri, Kirsty Voles, Hugh Michael Moore, Chris Morley, Victoria Clarkson, Lily Fong, Tanya Banagala, Jess Beaver, Dylan Gorton, Vaughan Cockburn, Kalina Sparks, Tom McKenzie, and James Goffwin. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Stacey Rotter, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. To learn more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.